This is somewhat sad, as it's the last presentation of our tour of Asia, um, but it gives me a great deal of pleasure to introduce this man. Uh, James Hoffman, uh, I met 2003 for the first time, um, and I won't kind of give away where he was working when I first met him, but we were both not necessarily doing what we're doing today. Um, a renowned social media god. Uh, one of the coffee bloggers that if you don't read, you're not in coffee. Um, James began barista competition life in a blaze of glory. Um, the video isn't out there, but he used to be called Spiller. Um, I'll let you decide why he was called Spiller. But then James finished fourth in his first world championships in 2006 and then went to Tokyo in 2007 where he... He won, which kind of got in the way of setting up his company, Square Mark Coffee Roasters in London, as winning a World Barista Championship means that you have to travel all around the world. Not content with changing the London coffee world, James is also now a published author with the Coffee Atlas. The Atlas has already become the must-have book in my office, and I'm sure will in yours. Um, for anyone involved in coffee, it's an amazing resource to have there. Um, and I was waiting for a very long time for it to come, and it took James to do that. A personal friend, a great speaker, and a fantastic way to end Tampa Tantrum Asia Tour 2014, I give you Mr. James Hoffman. Good afternoon. Um, first of all, thank you to all of you for making me feel so very welcome here. Uh, it's one of the best bits of traveling is getting to meet all of you. And it's a real pleasure to be sort of wrapping up today uh, and talking to you. And what I'd like to talk to you about is something that has become increasingly important to me and something I think about more and more every day. And that's telling stories. Now, in coffee, we talk about telling stories all the time. We talk about the importance of telling the stories of our coffees. And we talk as if we're actually very good at it. Now, I'm going to argue a little bit today that we're not as good at telling stories as we think we are, but then talk about how we can take maybe a more practical approach to storytelling and do a little bit better. That's the goal. Now, we talk in coffee as if the secret to winning over consumers is a cup of coffee. And if only we could make our coffee taste just a little bit better, then finally everybody would, would get it. Then everybody would understand why we're so passionate. But as important as the cup of coffee is, and as true the fact that I think everyone in this room has probably had a cup of coffee that changed their life, I think it's fair to say, it doesn't always work for us. We're already serving some really special cups of coffee, but they're not really bringing us the new consumers. And I think there are other ways to bring people into what we do, to make them interested in what we do. And that, for me, is where storytelling comes in. Now, stories began to be an, an interesting thing for me when I started to research my book. And I would read all sorts of histories of different companies in different coffee-producing countries. And I became, I became interested in one type of story, they had a quality that was interesting that I'm going to call persistent. They hung around. They lasted for years and years and years and years. 
They became myths in a way. They became a, a part of our culture. And I was curious why some stories did this and others didn't. Uh, I wondered what qualities a story needed to have to really last. And sadly, I came to a few conclusions. And the first is this. A good story doesn't need to be true. Uh, this is the reason I think we get quite angry about some of the stories I'm going to tell you. But these stories that hung around, that persisted, were not the most informative. They were not the most useful. And I will give you an example of what I mean. Now, you've probably all been in coffee long enough to know one story that you probably hate a little bit. And you hate it because everyone brings it up and it makes you roll your eyes a little bit. And you're like, okay, I've heard this before. And I'm talking about the story of Caldi the goat herd. Now, you all know this story so well, it probably will hurt you a little bit to hear me tell it to you again. But very simply, the story is that one day Caldi, a simple goat herd, he is watching his goats and he notices that after eating the berries on a certain tree, they become very excited. Caldi, a curious man, goes to the tree and eats the same berries, himself invigorated and alive. Thus, man discovers caffeine addiction. And this story hangs around. It just hangs around. Everyone knows this story. It's not true. There was no Caldi. We've, <laughs> we've known for a very long time that we've, you know, coffee was consumed as a fruit, often balled up with animal fat as a trail snack in parts of Ethiopia and Africa. But there was no Caldi. But we love this story. It hangs around. Do we like it because... There's a name. There's a person. We like there to be somebody. Do we like it because it makes us feel as okay about drinking coffee because it's a natural product? If the animals like it, then it must be fine for us to like it too. Maybe we like it because it's the start of animal testing. I don't know, but it hangs around. I'll give you another example. Who knows the story of Gabrielle de Cleur? Ah, you're not telling me the truth. All of you who saw the film last night know the story of Gabrielle de Cleur, but I'll explain. Now, this story comes from his own journal. This is his diary, and he would tell the story. Now, this brave Frenchman, he takes one or two coffee trees on a ship across to the New World. And this ship, this journey is very perilous. He must fight off saboteurs trying to destroy his precious, precious coffee plants. He gives the plants his own water rations so that it can survive. And this plant arrives in Martinique, and the story goes that this is the coffee plant that spreads to all of South and Central America. This man is claiming, in his own words, that he is the forefather of much of our coffee industry. Mm, that's a big claim. This man... He's claiming that, you know, he brought coffee to countries like Brazil or El Salvador. Countries where, you know, they were built on coffee in many ways. Coffee was such an important crop that coffee built roads, coffee built railways, coffee built ports. They made the infrastructure so that coffee could become a dominant agricultural force. In fact, in El Salvador's case, it arrives at a perfect time. Up until the mid-1800s, El Salvador mostly grew a plant called indigo. And indigo was used to make uh, dyes. But in the mid-1850s, 
chemical dyes. And suddenly, El Salvador is obsolete. We don't need indigo now. And thus, coffee arrives just in time and takes over the agricultural industry of the whole country. This man is making a fantastic claim to fame. And we tell his story often. Peter Giuliano told his story in the film. But we know it's not true. He wrote this in 1723. In fact, for decades, we've known that coffee was around in South America much, much earlier. 1715, here, this book, this is just a photo of a book called Coffee by a guy called Frederick Wellman. This was published in 1961. He was, you know, by no means the first, and we've known that for a long time. We know the story is not true. Many people brought coffee to South America, but his story lives on. It continues to win. And I wonder why. Again, is it because there's a name? What is it about the story? Let me change topic for a second. Let me go back to a cup of coffee. Now, the cup of coffee that changed my life was a coffee from Kenya. And it was on a cupping table, uh, and I tasted it, and it was from a farm, which is quite unusual. It was from an estate in Kenya called Gethambwini. And in fact, in Kenya, it's increasingly unusual to get a great coffee from a single estate, which seems strange, but many of the estates now are being sold as uh, the political class ousted in 2007 has moved out of Nairobi and they're buying up land and the people with estates are selling land. And we're seeing most of the great coffees from Kenya coming from the smallholders and the, the, the sort of uh, micro-producers who are feeding into a mill. But this was from an estate. And it was the first coffee that I tasted that tasted nothing like coffee. It tasted of black currants. It tasted of sweet fruit juice. I had no idea coffee could taste like this. Changed my life, changed my mind. What's weird is that when I had this coffee, I'd been working in the coffee industry for one year. I was passionate about coffee for one year before I even tasted something that didn't taste like coffee. Something else actually brought me in and made me interested. It doesn't just have to be great coffee. So I started here. I started a year before tasting this, in a department store, demonstrating little domestic coffee machines like this. And I would uh, make you an espresso or a cappuccino, and uh, you would be stuck, because I gave you a real cup, and you would have to talk to me for five minutes while you drank your coffee, and while you were talking, I would tell you how good an idea it was that maybe you take one of these home. And as a result, there are lots of these sitting in cupboards around the world. Uh, and I didn't even like coffee when I started. Couldn't stand it. But it was disgusting. Very bitter. Don't get it. I'm not very good in the mornings. I, I thought I should drink coffee, but I just couldn't. It was too bad. But I enjoyed what I was doing, and I figured I should learn more. So I went to my local bookshop, and I bought the one book that they had on coffee, which is this. Now, this at the time was really the only thing I could find, and it's a really fun book. It's called The Devil's Cup by a guy called Stuart Lee Allen. And... It's kind of about coffee, but it's kind of not. It's travel writing. And he starts in Ethiopia, and he documents his journey uh, along the path that coffee took in history as it spread around the world. And it's a book full of stories. And the stories fascinated me. And in many ways, they were the kind of second wave of stories. They're not stories that we want to tell anymore, but they were really good stories. And I, I felt that coffee had a place in my life. I'll give you an example. In the mid-1600s, London 
uh, is full of drunks. In fact, the whole nation is pretty much drunk. Uh, we drink about six liters of beer a day at this point. Uh, it's not very strong, but it's, it's a good source of calories and B vitamins. We have beer soup for breakfast. We're pretty useless, drunk and lazy, and I'll acknowledge that maybe not much has changed. Uh, in the mid-1600s, a merchant, a merchant traveler called Daniel Edwards returns from Turkey, or the Ottoman Empire as it was then, bringing with him his man manservant, Pasquale Rose, a man who brought with him the practice of, of roasting and brewing coffee. And they think this is a good idea, so they set Pasquale Rose up with his own little coffee cart in the middle of London. He's the first guy to sell coffee. He is a huge success. And suddenly, coffee is a huge success. Coffee houses kind of take over London. And for about 100 years, London is the greatest coffee-drinking city in the world. And what I love about this is that coffee changed my culture completely. Coffee changed politics. Coffee changed art. Coffee changed literature. Coffee changed journalism. It changed business. Lloyd's of London is a very famous uh, insurance company. It was a coffee house that began when traders would just sit at a coffee table and do business over a cup of coffee. In fact, those who worked running around the building to this day are often referred to as waiters. That's its coffee house history. And suddenly, coffee had meaning to me. Coffee was relevant to me. And that was interesting. It made me more engaged. It was a part of who I was. And you could argue that up until coffee, as a drunk nation, we're not really interested in very much. But caffeine wakes us up, and we're interested. And we go and start exploring the world and telling people it's ours. And you could argue that coffee starts the British Empire. I kind of like that idea. I like that that one drink builds an empire. It was interesting to me. It made me want to know more. It made me feel like coffee actually was part of who I was. And uh, the Boston Tea Party. You probably know this story. The Americans, tired of being taxed by the British on tea, they go on board the ship and they throw the tins of tea, the barrels of tea into the water as a way of rejecting the evil British because from time to time we're pretty evil. And at this point, they reject tea wholesale and they embrace coffee. They love coffee. There's a guy called William Eukers who wrote a book called All About Coffee in the 1920s. And he tries to claim that the very first ship that brought the pilgrims to America, the pestle and mortar on board, was probably used for coffee. It really wasn't. But understanding this is interesting because this is why coffee is such a big part of everyday life in America. It's interesting to me. But let's talk about our story. Tell me if you've heard this before. Passionate coffee roasting company sends green buyer to origin country. There, they meet a producer, discovering their amazing coffee. This, they pay a premium for, bring back, roast beautifully, and sell. And thus, the consumer paying a premium passes this right back through to the producer, and good is done in the world. Have we heard this before? Yes, we have. We've heard it from just about every single coffee roasting company in the world now. We're all telling the same story. And I would argue it's not working. And I'll tell you why. Outside of the industry, it's not persistent. No one has ever come up to me and told me that story back to me. 
No one said, oh, oh, you work in coffee. Let me tell you about this roasting company. who are by They found this producer. No one wants to tell me this because I don't think anyone believes me because we're all telling the same story. Brian touched on it before. Every roasting company in the world is the one that is buying the best coffees. Every roasting company in the world is roasting it to its maximum potential. Every roasting company in the world is selling it at its freshest. Every roasting company in the world is working with the best cafes. Really? We're all the best? No, none of us are the best. But we're all saying the same thing, and when we do that, it loses its meaning. Brian touched on it before. We're not differentiating. We all look the same. It's a bunch of voices talking at the same level, and it just becomes noise. I'm a huge fan of barista competitions. I love them, and not just because they had a wonderful impact on my life. I see them have a positive impact on many people. But here's an opportunity to tell a story. Here is 15 minutes with four people and their full attention. And even better, when you get to tell this story, you can use props. You can use cups of coffee to really make your point. But instead, we don't tell stories. We read facts. This coffee was grown at 1,700 meters. Good. And why are you telling me this? We, we're not bringing people in. We're just demonstrating how much we know. And I think we could do better. Again, I took this photo. I quite like this photo. But I guarantee pretty much everyone in this room has taken exactly the same photo at this at some point in their lives. We're all painting with the same colors. And I think we could do more. Now, this handsome gentleman is not me. This is a man called Ira Glass. And he's a radio host in the US. He has a, a show called This American Life. And I chose him because he did something I like which is he went online in a video and he explained the process of telling a story. He broke it down into, into its kind of building blocks. And I took it as a really great lesson. And to him, there's two big building blocks. And the first he calls anecdote. It's pretty simple. It's telling a pretty linear story of what happened. So to borrow Aida, Aida started growing uh, coffee in 2002. 2003, she won the Cup of Excellence. She grows some unusual varieties and uh, experiments with processing. There's a little anecdote. That's Aida. But it's not a very good anecdote because it doesn't really raise any questions. A good little story should make you a bit more curious. Maybe if I said Aida returned after a long absence to El Salvador in 2002. She took over a farm with an unusual variety from Kenya, which she processed in interesting ways. And this captured the imagination of judges at a cup of excellence. So much so that they said record prices bidding for this coffee, which enabled her to create new relationships and experiment more with processing. It's a slightly better story, but the second piece is missing. Why am I telling you this? What is the point of my story? Anecdotes can be fun, but they're pretty meaningless. There needs to be a, a why. And for me, the why of her coffee, you can drink a Kenyan coffee variety, processed as they would in Kenya, but grown in El Salvador. In that one cup, you can have insight into the taste of the earth that that coffee is growing in, because you can compare that to the same variety grown in Kenya. And you can get a little window into understanding where in flavor uh, things come from. Is that berry fruit 
the SL28? Or is it the soil? And when we taste this, we can learn and it becomes very, very, very interesting. So what I'm talking about here is encouraging all of us to tell better stories. I'm not saying you can't tell the story of where your coffee's from, but I want you to think a little bit more about why you're telling that story. Are you saying that you do such a good job in how you source to tell the story of the producer, or are you trying to tell a story about yourself? Are you trying to tell a story about the ethics and the purpose of your business? Mine is a pretty new coffee culture and so is yours. There are no rules. We don't have to do anything. And just because everyone else is telling the same story doesn't mean we have to follow. But I want us to think a little bit more about why we're saying what we're saying. What do we want to achieve? And how then do our stories become a little bit more persistent? I hope I leave you with some questions. Some I hope to answer right now. For now, thank you very much. As always, very thought-provoking. Hey. Um, again, great Thank presentation. So, yes, I've been thinking a lot about this because we've been doing this for a number of days, and um, I think I've asked the question a few times, but maybe not got it the right way. So, it's given me a chance to ask you lots of questions and get the phrasing right for it. So, how do we tell that story of? Finding this special coffee, because that's what we find when we go to origin, you know, that's why, that's why we go, we go to source great coffee. How do we tell that story in a more interesting way? Because I, 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 think, I think you're exactly right on what you're saying, I'm not in any way uh, disagreeing with you, I think it's a problem we've had for a while in the coffee industry. But it is the same story, just going to be told a different way. 我想这个问题我们之前可能有讨论过那我们要怎么样才可以用一个不无聊又有趣的方式去讲我们去找好咖啡的这个过程呢? It's a very good question, and I think many of us are looking around for an answer. I would say, to sort of split this for a second, the stories of coffee, in terms of the, the transparency and traceability, in some ways should always be told. You know, we should always be clear and open about where we're sourcing our coffee from. 这是一个非常好的问题。那我们要从几个层面来讲。第一点就是我们采买咖啡的过程应该要透明而且清楚。我们应该总是要提供我们买咖啡的对象，还有我们买咖啡的方式的资讯，这个应该是要表达出来的。
we bought it because it was delicious and you should buy it and drink it. I don't need to tell that story. I can, t- I can tell other stories there. So it's, I think we just tell less of them and tell them better and make sure that there's a very good reason why we're telling the story. Uh,我们可以说今天我们喝到好咖啡，那就是这样子。可是如果你有一些真的非常特别的经验，你有一个真的很有趣的故事，而且这个故事最好是带有一点启发性，带有一些思考性在里面，那我们就可以把它拿出来说。像
我们说故事是说给谁听？我们忘记了有听众的存在。我们讲故事都是彼此互相说故事，可是我们却忘了，我们应该说的对象可能是那些对精品咖啡比较没有认知、比较没有了解的人。我们可能会去讲说：“哇，这个在瓜地马拉一千八一千八公尺的这个海拔，这对我们来说说哇，好高啊、哦，好厉害哦。”可是不懂咖啡的人，他根本不知道你在讲什么。I think we were, we're pretty bad at thinking about what a consumer will take away from our stories, and I think often our message is something along the lines of what we do is is better. We have better coffee than you're probably drinking, and what we fail to understand is not only that they not understand the process or the the why or, or how this coffee is, but what they understand from what we're saying is that. We think you have terrible taste in coffee right now, but we can help you. <laughs> Which is why many people think we're pretentious, because they're happy where they are. They don't feel the need for better. They've been drinking this coffee for 20 years. How dare I say that mine is better than them? It worked、know? for wine. <laughs> Did it? <laughs> well, we're drinking better wine. Wine got better. In many ways, though, like the, the two-dollar wine now is way better than than ten-dollar wine was twenty years ago. 嗯，对，其实说的一点都没错。我们常常会忘记我们说故事的对象，还有我们说故事的目标。我们很多时候说故事，重点其实都只有一个，就是我们的咖啡比较好，我们的咖啡可能比你的好，或比你习惯的来的好。可是喝咖啡的人，他可能并没有办法体会这件事情。可是他绝对可以体会的一件事情，就是我们一直跟他讲这些东西，我们讲处理，我们讲购买，他最后听出来的就是你的咖啡有够差，所以你要由我来指导，让你变得更好。那可能他就会不开心了，他觉得我这个咖啡都喝二十年了，我觉得很好，你凭什么说我差？你好大胆子，你算哪根葱？那。所以说这个东西，我们之前是有去过这个喝酒的时候是有碰到。那这个有的人的酒确实是变好了，可是这个经验在咖啡业界行不行得通？那个要再看看。I think that you can ask. I'll shut, I'll shut up. No, I was going to say, well, if you're okay, I'll go.、Uh, so another question: watching the presentation and thinking about Caldi, Declu, then thinking about Aida. Thinking about James Freeman and Blue Bottle, does a good coffee story always have one single hero? Is that part of making a story persistent? Can we tell a compelling story in which roasters and growers and consumers are all heroes? 那我们刚刚看到你讲的这些故事，里面可能包括阿伊达，包括 James Freeman 等这些人物，这些情节。那我的疑问在于，好的咖啡故事是不是需要有一位单一的英雄？我们是不是需要有一位角色来带领我们探索这个故事？还是故事也有可能我们去探索呃消费者、咖啡师、生产者、烘豆师之间的关系 ？Probably not, but、um, I don't think it has to have a hero. And to explain that, I'll pick on another story that we all hate. Which is Kopi Luwak? It's a terrible story that is incredibly persistent. It has no heroes. In fact, it has、uh, villains 
throughout it. It's a terrible aspect of our industry, but it's very, very persistent in a way. So I don't think it always has to be about a person, and I think the, but I think the more complex we make the story, the more I have to understand what a roaster does or what a buyer does, or even what a barista does, the more I have to understand that to enjoy the story, the smaller my audience will always be. 我觉得不一定是这样啦。我们不一定要有所谓的英雄，或是要有主角的存在。但是确实，我们的故事需要有一定的复杂性。那你讲这个，让我们想到我们大家都很讨厌这个卡皮尼瓦的这个故事。那这个故事里面没有英雄，没有主角，只有一堆的坏蛋，一堆讨厌的人。可是，就算是这样子，这依然是一个大家不断的诉说的故事，因为它非常的有一致性，它非常的稳定。所以，我觉得故事的结构要复杂一点，比较引人入胜。但是，你对你的问题，我觉得不一定要有主角。I can imagine there are going to be people jumping out of their seats to ask you some questions. So, would anybody like to ask James a question? 有人要问 James 问题。呃、uh, ，Thanks for the great presentation.、Uh, I would like to ask you, because you've been traveling around the world quite a bit, and do you have any stories you want to share with us on this Asia tour? <laughs> I love that question. 呃，那问题就是。那你这几天旅行了不少地方，那你这一趟亚洲巡回之旅，你有没有自己的故事想要跟我们分享 ？That is the best question of this trip. 嗯，这是目前最好的一个问题了。Um, uh, I owe you a book now. Um, from this trip, that's a that's a a tough question because I think that. In the middle of it right now, I'm still processing a lot of, of what we're seeing. There are so many similarities in、um, in the new coffee cultures coming up around Asia to my hometown, to London, that I think are quite surprising. And there are so many differences too that、uh, I, I need to spend a little time. There will be stories that I'll tell my staff to explain what we can maybe learn and gain from. Who's being successful here, and who's doing interesting things?、Um, but right now, I'm still I'm still drinking in everything. I promise, if you, I'll write on my blog a story about this trip. You have、but、a blog? But for now, give、maybe、me a little time. Maybe about that question. Huh? I said maybe about that question. I will answer that question properly, but give me two weeks. <laughs> 对这个故事，呃，这个问题真的很好，可是实在是非常的难回答。呃，我必须说，我现在巡回还没有结束，所以我人还在其中。那当局者迷，我可能要一些时间去吸收跟思考。那绝对是会有故事的啦，像是我发现在这趟旅程里面，我看到亚洲这个新的咖啡文化里面，跟我的家乡伦敦的咖啡产业有如此多共通之处，却又有如此多不同之处。那我回去之后，我一定会跟我的员工讲到我这趟旅程，我会讲到我们看到的成功的故事，会讲到我们看到有趣的故事。但是这个可能都需要一些时间来整理。那我之后可能有空的时候，我再把它写到我的部落格上。所以你这个问题，我绝对会回答。可是你要给我两个礼拜的时间。But come and see me after this. I need your address to send you a book. 
。那你如果结束后你来找我，我留个地址给我，我可以再详细的回答你。Not every question gets a free book. Just the really good ones. But, I've asked loads of questions. Why have I got a free book? You've got a book in the picture. <laughs> oh yeah. Sorry, we'll stop squabbling like children.、Um, any other questions? <laughs> 还有没有其他问题？ I think we'll go to the back first. Uh, I want to ask you, is that, uh, I know he has just released a new book, "The World Atlas of Coffee." That is possible in Taiwan. Thank you. So the question is, I know that you recently published your newest book, "The World Atlas of Coffee." Is there any possibility of a Chinese translation? Here in Taiwan, yes.、Uh, <laughs> as I understand it, it's being worked on、uh, now, and hopefully June next year, it should be available. 那当然，对，没有没有问题。这个就我所知，现在已经有人在翻译了。那大概明年六月就可以问世，跟大家见面了。A fantastic place. To leave it on a positive. Yes, I can fix that question. <laughs> 好，那这个看来是很完美的结束的时间点。So,、um, I'm going to thank James, but you won't listen to me after you've clapped. So we're going to take a five-minute break, and we're going to have a panel discussion where James will be back, and you get a chance to ask him questions. Then, for all those who missed out, along with others,、um, but a huge round of applause for James Hoffman. 呃，我们要谢谢 James， 可是，一旦你们开始拍手，就没有人要听我讲话了。所以说，我要跟你们说，我们等一下休息五分钟，回来之后，我们会有一个讨论会，我们会有一个 panel。那所以，请大家回来，到时候 James 还会再上台，你们可以继续问他问题。那先给他掌声鼓励。Thank you.